It's been nearly 20 years since Hillary Clinton captured the nation's attention with a book entitled, It Takes a Village, a title taken from an old African proverb. In our mobile culture, with its emphasis on self-reliance, the book continues to be timely. We still need to be reminded that it takes more than a nuclear family to raise children. It takes a village. Every parent knows this. Without an extended family, without the support of schools and churches and scout groups and sports teams and neighbors, it's nearly impossible to raise a child. Presbyterians take this village notion seriously in the way we raise our children in the faith. When we baptize a child, the parents promise to raise the child in the community of faith, and at the same time, the congregation promises to embrace the child and play a supporting role in his or her nurture, guidance, and instruction. This is one of the main reasons that here at First Presbyterian Church, we devote significant resources to an associate pastor for families, youth, and children. In Marin County, where faith in anything is countercultural, we know it takes a village. So, why would we think it would be any different in our own faith journey, in our adult faith journey? Even if you went to Sunday school pretty regularly as a kid, if you add up the hours, it's probably less than a first-grade education. Add it up. No one would expect anyone to build a bridge or do surgery or teach history on less than a first-grade education. Why would we think it's enough to help us live and understand and practice the life of faith? As adults, throughout life, through all ages and stages, we need to continue to develop our faith. And yet, because we do live in this culture that values self-sufficiency and independence, it's tempting to approach our faith journey as if we're essentially on our own. Thanks be to God, the Christian faith has always been a community endeavor. This morning, we hear about the disciples gathering together to share with each other the bewildering experience that they've had with the risen Christ. Now, of course they're excited, but listen to what Luke is telling us. Cleopas and the other disciple are on their way to the village of Emmaus when they meet this stranger on the road. They reach the village and they try to convince him to spend the night because it's almost evening. He joins them for dinner, and in the breaking of the bread, something in his words or in his voice or in his actions suddenly helps them to realize who he really is, and then he disappears. Even though it's almost evening at this point, that same hour, they race back seven miles to Jerusalem. Seven miles, possibly in a cart or on a donkey, but the text doesn't tell us, so maybe they're on foot. Without streetlights, without headlights, without flashlights. This is news that can't wait until morning. When they get to Jerusalem, they find the eleven saying that Jesus has risen, and they in turn share what happened to them. On Easter morning, I said that resurrection is not a doctrine or a fact to be believed, 
but an experience. And according to Luke, it's an experience to be shared. The disciples, witnesses to the resurrection, gather together in community. It's in community that they share the stories of what they have experienced. It's in community that they grow their faith and encourage each other. And it's in community that they prepare to become signs of the resurrection themselves, to help others see the presence of Christ in the world, to witness to the resurrection. The word witness in our tradition has a bit of a spotty history, but being a Christian witness does not mean giving a sales pitch. Christian witness is about telling the truth about our experience as best we can in such a way that both we and the people who hear us or see us grow in the love of God and the love of neighbor. The purpose is to transform lives, to transform our real lives and our world. On your bulletin covers, Henry Nouwen describes Christian community as the place where we learn how to do this, the place where we keep the flame of hope alive among us, That is how we dare to say that God is a God of love when we see death and destruction and agony all around us. We say it together. We affirm it in each other. What Nowen is saying is that it takes a village. It takes a village to turn us into witnesses and to shape our faith. It takes a village, if for no other reason, than it takes human flesh and blood to translate the truths of our experiences into new life. One of our confessions puts it this way. The new life takes shape in a community in which people know that God loves and accepts them in spite of what they are. They, therefore, accept themselves and love others, knowing that no one has any ground on which to stand except God's grace. How does the community help us do this? Well, in many ways, through worship and serving and opportunities for education. But this weekend, many of the women of this congregation enjoyed exploring a tool, a a gift of our faith development, that many of us take for granted or don't appreciate fully. That is singing. We don't sing hymns in worship just to break the monotony of all that talking. (laughs) Although there's that too. Kay Collette, our wonderful retreat leader, explained that if we sing in church the way most Protestants do in worship, each of us becomes not only a human jukebox of hymn tunes, but a library of sacred poetry. Over a lifetime of singing, these hymns comfort us, inspire us, energize us, sustain us, surprise us, move us to tears, evoke memories, teach theology, and very importantly, ground us and give us a sense of belonging, a visceral, bodily sense that we are the body of Christ. Singing is something we do with our bodies. It's unique in that, as someone in the movie that we watched Friday night put it, when we sing, there is no separation between the human voice and the soul that it expresses. 
God is not confined to church music, of course, but the hymns of our faith connect us. God also isn't confined to hymns of any particular era. Our hymnal includes hymns representing five centuries of music and theology. And the new Presbyterian hymnal we're hoping to buy will include music from six centuries. New words and music connect us to the present, while old hymns connect us with the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. And the best hymns have a timeless quality, even when they have oddly archaic language. One of my favorite hymns includes the phrase, Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. And women at the retreat talked about the way this special and odd and poetic language can take us to a different place, a a sacred space, a mystic place. Sunday after Sunday, one mystery after another rolls glibly off your tongue and you don't realize it. But one day, you do. Kay told us about Charles Blow, who wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago, uh, that he has watched with a heavy heart as one child after another commits suicide after being bullied. Mr. Blow, who is gay and black, knows that pain, having been bullied and having considered taking his own life. When he was eight years old, he went to a skating rink, even though he had a bad headache. He didn't want to miss this rare treat, and so he stuffed a bottle of aspirin in his pocket. At one point, he left the rink to go take the aspirin. He writes, I was having fun, but even in the happiest of times, sorrow lurked just below the surface. A combination of traumas I had endured in my young life, not the least of which was a period of rather relentless teasing and bullying from all directions, classmates as well as extended family members, was eating me hollow. As a thousand flecks of light raced each other around the walls, I felt my spirit begin to cleave my body. I seemed now to be watching the scene from beyond the pale of my own humanity, and in this place, the weariness of pushing back against a wall of sadness melted away. For a moment, I was free. He decided he liked this detached and free feeling and didn't want to return to the world, to his life, He decided to take the whole bottle of aspirin, not really knowing whether it would kill him, but hoping it would. Then he writes, the questions came. Would it hurt? Would my mother be sad? Would I go to hell for committing suicide? Heavy questions piling up like boots at the bottom of a dark closet. Before I could form answers, Mr. Blow writes, one of my mother's songs came to save me. The song that came to him that he had heard enough times and sung enough times that he knew all the words by heart was Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Mr. Blow writes, I didn't know why it was in my head, but I took it as a sign that God 
would somehow make a way for me to survive, that I had to be brave and patient, that this was not to be my last night. So I swallowed two aspirin and flung myself back out onto the hardwood to the life-affirming sounds of earth, wind, and fire's shining star. Sunday after Sunday, one mystery after another glibly rolls off our tongue, and you don't realize it, but one day you do. I have long known that hymns teach us theology, for better or for worse, depending on the hymn. I've also known that singing hymns holds us together as a body of Christ. Kay Collette's mentor on this subject, Eric Routley, writes, Singing binds us to one another much more than simply speaking. The rhythm of song keeps us in sync. We agree not to be soloists, withdrawn meditators or competitors, but to join our voices as if joining hands, listening to each other, even loving each other in the act of singing. One of the women at the retreat put this much more succinctly. She said, sometimes I feel I'm more a believer when I'm singing a hymn with other people. But what I appreciated in a new way this weekend is how our singing together develops and prepares us for the life of faith beyond worship. It shapes us from the body outward or from the body inward. I'm not even sure what the direction is, except that it's not cerebral. It's not cognitive. It is a downright mystical way. And, and in singing songs, our, the, singing the songs of our faith together, it shapes us into people who are signs of the resurrection, who help others to see the presence of Christ in the world, and who are better prepared to respond to life's challenges with trust in God and with the grace of Christ. I heard story after story this weekend of how the songs of our faith have been a resource that shapes us and helps us in surprising ways. Using Charles Blow's words, singing taps into a more tender part of ourselves, a part where we can be more beautifully human. Singing the songs of our faith together transforms us, and it happens in a way that reaches right past our brains and goes straight to our hearts. Faith and life can at times feel a bit like a seven-mile run in the dark. But at the end of the run are people who know that God loves and accepts us in spite of what we are, with whom we can join our voices as if joining hands, listening to each other, even loving each other in the act of singing. Thanks be to God for the village, for the gifts of our voices, music, our tradition of singing hymns, and the mystery of the way that they work together to make us signs of the resurrection. Amen. Amen.